This scripture is from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Hang on a minute. So this scripture, you miss the whole thing of it if you don't understand where they're standing. Literally, where their feet are planted. They're in the district of Caesarea Philippi. This is one of Herod's sons, Philip, is the tetrarch of this particular region. It's sort of, it's sort of northeast of Jerusalem, probably about 75 miles. We believe where they are standing, there are all of these, what we would consider now, of course, ancient temples. To this day, there's still ruins to a temple that is the god Pan, right? And there are other temples to other gods in this particular location. There's a, there's a stream that runs there, and apparently there's, there's a cave where, for years and years, I'm not for sure to which god they did this, but they made human sacrifice. They would push people off of this cliff down into the water to their death, and when the blood came out, on the other side, they knew that the sacrifice had been made. So this is where they're standing. So they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples what question? Who do people say the Son of Man is? So they're standing where there's all of this supposedly supernatural power, all of these gods are being honored, and they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter says about the highest thing that he could say about him, that he knows at this point. You are the Messiah or the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and in the Greek it's Petros, which literally is rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Context is incredibly important, and when it comes to the scripture, you get so much more out of it. All right, so we need to practice. We need to practice our response to bad jokes, okay? So Joel tells a joke, usually a bad one, and everybody goes, wah, wah, wah. Very good. Okay, good. Excellent. We've got that down. All right, so here's a few more uh, teaching evaluations of Jesus. I've been doing these the past few weeks. I think they're hilarious. You may not. This, this is great. He's kind of absent-minded. I mean, my name is Simon, but he's called me Peter for the entire semester. I see you voting with your voice. I hear you. I wanted to like this class, but on the first day, he submerged us in a river instead of going over the syllabus. And that was kind of a lot. He doesn't respect students' time. A line of us have been waiting outside his office for over 
an hour. Finally, he shows up and he says, you know what's coming, right? The last shall be first. (laughs) And started seeing us in reverse order. I made me wait for work study. Oh, here, okay, got to do this one. This goes back home, okay, so feels like a class for farmers. Hope you like talking about seeds, wheat seeds, mustard seeds, 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 seeds. Anyway, there you go. Wah, 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 yeah. I, I just think, I think those are fun because you got, you got to know the scripture to, to understand all of that. Uh, of course, we've been walking through the catechism. We're up to, we're up to question 24 and 25. If you haven't been following along, I encourage you. You can you can download the app for free, the New City Catechism app. You can download that app for free. You can you can look at that. It's also online. You get the whole you can get the whole thing for free. I bought the devotional so I could work on you know sermons and and whatnot. There are prayers in here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, catechism is catechesis is teaching. Traditionally, in Christian teaching, we've taught through a catechism. It's a series of questions and answers. So question and then answer. So this is the question for today. Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Here's the answer, according to this catechism. Since death is the punishment for sin, which we've been, we've been learning. We've, this is very systematic how we've been going along here. We've been learning about sin, about God, about us, about sin. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. Now here's some technical language that we might be talking about. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Now, the next question, which we may reference, does Christ's death mean all sins can be forgiven? Yes, because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin. God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own, and will remember our sins no more. Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? I think that's the, that, it's one of the sticking point questions for most thinking people. And here's, here's why I think we get stuck on it, is because we, we do not have the background information, we do not have the cultural understanding of sacrifice that the disciples did, that the people who were originally writing the scriptures and talking about what Christ's death meant. It's a very foreign concept to us, in a sense, we understand like this legal sort of thing that there, that there are laws, there are rules, and that, and that if you do something, you break those rules, you're supposed to pay a penalty for it. We, we sort of get that. But oftentimes when it comes to this, this word substitutionary atonement, big words, meaning Jesus was a substitute, took our place, you know, so that God's justice could be lifted up. We have some problem with that because I think we don't, 
we don't understand sort of the cultural and the religious backgrounds of sacrifice that were in place at the time. I'm getting way ahead of myself. I jumped right in in the middle with both feet. Let's talk about, let's talk about the resurrection and the event of Jesus' death and resurrection. Without this, there is nothing known as Christianity. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus and whatever understanding comes out of that, there is no Christianity. This is like like the Exodus story for Jewish people. The event of Jesus' death and resurrection is the centerpiece story of our faith. I know this doesn't come as any surprise to you, but it's so interesting how we, we can sort of get caught up in all this other stuff. And so, you have to start there. Some theologians will start all over the place. But the way I was trained, like we started, we started with Jesus and the resurrection. That's the lens through which we begin to see absolutely everything. To try to figure out, well, one, what happened there? What was their understanding? And, and how do we get to where we are now that, in terms of what does it mean? And so, so what I want, what I want us to try to get into here in terms of context is, well, I'm going to ask a question. Before something happens, do you know what it means? I mean, really? Before you graduated from high school, did you understand all the permutations of that that would be rolled out for you afterwards? If you said yes, we've got to talk because you're a little more omniscient than I was. Right? When you, if you, if you did this, when you fell in love got engaged, got married, did you have any clue whatsoever what you were getting yourself into? Yeah, no. Okay, good. I'm glad people are shaking their heads, right? Yes. Men are very gently shaking their heads. <laughs> Women are strongly shaking their heads. No, no idea. No idea. Yeah. Things happen, and we might have some, you know, some idea, because we like to think about the future a lot. Mostly we like to worry about the future a lot. We like to spin up stories about the future a lot. But, but the disciples, Jesus was saying to them at different points, like, like not too long after, after Peter, Simon Peter, makes this declaration about Jesus as the Messiah and all that, he starts to tell them, well, I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to be killed, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, God forbid it. This should not happen to you. Like, like they, they can't even conceive of this sort of thing happening. So how, are they, how would they even be looking forward to it? But then it happens. Jesus is put on trial. He is hung on a cross. They put him in a tomb. And what do they find three days later? An empty tomb. They find an empty tomb. What's interesting to me and to some other theologians is there are no eyewitnesses to the actual resurrection. Just think about that for a minute. 
Nobody saw Jesus' body get up from where it was laid. Nobody was standing watch to recount that for us. What we do have is we have that Jesus appeared to certain people. And of course, we know that all the different teaching assistants, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have different perspectives on, you know, was it the women who saw, who met him first as a gardener? Was it, you know, was it Peter who ran in and looked in and saw that he wasn't there? Like, what? We had these different perspectives. So they had these experiences with Jesus, and then we see what their actions are. We see what their actions are. And what happened was, is when he's on the cross, the men scatter. Because they know this, they know this story. They're worried about the future. They know that people who are seen as insurrectionists in, in Roman-occupied territories, if their leader gets crucified, guess who they're coming after next? Whoever the followers were. And the twelve were like, everybody knows that we were following this guy. We are dead meat. They scattered. The women stayed, you know, did what they did, everything they were supposed to do. After this empty tomb, after they meet Jesus, all of a sudden, they're super active. Like, they're not afraid to talk about Jesus. They're not afraid. To, to go in the public sphere and, and to share about Jesus' death and resurrection and that it means something incredibly amazing, that it actually is about a new life and a forgiveness of our sin that leads to something amazing and leads us to do things differently. They doubled down on being in their community and caring for widows and orphans. They doubled down on what we would call now community organizing, getting people together. There were people like the Apostle Paul who had been vehemently against Christianity when he encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. All of a sudden, he, turns, he makes a 180. Now he's an ambassador for Christ and he's out there spreading the word and planting these other communities. So if you just look at what happens afterwards, something happened. Something pretty amazing happened because I'll, I'll just tell you what, you don't, you don't go from being afraid of being killed to putting yourself out in the public sphere, fomenting really revolution because that's really what they're still doing. Like they're talking about that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. I mean, it's a whole different conversation, an entirely different conversation than saying, my president didn't get reelected, but he's still my president. So this is a whole different thing. Caesar was Lord and God. And you had, to, you had to make that declaration. If you said anything else, off with your head. They were out there saying, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is the only Lord. And guess what? Not only is Jesus Lord and the Son of the living God, Jesus is God. They start to backtrack, and they start to look at what they know coming out of their Jewish understanding, and they start to put the pieces together. 
something amazing has happened. We said that I believe Jesus was the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah the way we thought. We thought he was going to take over things and put things back in place. He didn't do that, but he died and he was resurrected and it gave us a new life. And so now he also must be God because only God could have done these things. And so then they start to have to put together the pieces, right? Because their understanding is a sacrificial system. It was a sacrificial system. They sacrificed animals to the living God. Now, what's interesting is that now most of, most of you, you know, who, who've read Leviticus 20 or 30 times in your lifetime and love that book will understand this. I know that's none of you. You need to understand this, that Leviticus was a huge step forward. Because for most ancient people, they had no idea if the sacrifices they were making were what they were supposed to do. There weren't rules. It was like, well, if, when you cross the threshold, you're supposed to you know, do something to, to appease the threshold God, but you never knew if you did enough. Leviticus is like, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. That's why it's all numbers and this many animals and you walk this way and you put this tent pole up this way. It's all very prescribed because it's actually a step forward in saying, and you do this and you show your allegiance and your love for God and God responds. So they understood this sacrificial system. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus was the last sacrifice. And that he was also the priest who made that sacrifice. That's where it starts to get really complicated. And that's why we get this language of why is it necessary for Christ to die? Because now we're like, well, how does this work? You have to understand the system. The system is, in order for sins to be forgiven, something has to be sacrificed. That's why we have this substitutionary atonement sort of thing. Our sin is so deep, so horrendous, that it leads to death. Jesus or we might say God in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lovingly and willingly gives himself in order to, and this is where it gets really crazy, and this is the mystery of it, in order to appease that justice. Jesus gives himself willingly out of love for humanity in order that we might have a new relationship with God, be reconciled to God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and live a new life as ambassadors of Christ. Do you know how many understandings of the atonement that there are that we talk about throughout history? Any idea? There's substitutionary atonement. Most of us get that one. That's the one that that everybody seems to understand and want to pound you on. And that's the one that probably makes people the most uncomfortable because it's very much, it feels very much like God the Father is a child abuser who sacrifices his son just because he's mean. I mean, that's sort of the the horrible shorthand that a lot of people use for that. That's That's not true, but that's just sort of how it goes. I mean, I understand how you get there. 
All right, I'm going to walk us through this because I think we ought to at least have some idea about it. There's the moral influence theory of the atonement, meaning Jesus was a great guy, he's a great teacher, and so we ought to follow his example. He died so that we could have this great example and that that's how we get this new life. There's the ransom theory that, well, and it, here's what also gets interesting, is that Jesus pays the ransom to the devil or to God, the Father. And then the, the question there is, what does is, what is God, what is God the Father owe the devil? But that's a whole other sermon. Jesus pays our ransom to God. That's the ransom theory. So that because we owe a debt, there's a ransom to be paid to get, not that, Nobody's holding us hostage, but we've, hold, we've held ourselves hostage, in a sense, by our sin. There is what's called Christus Victor. Jesus dies to defeat the powers of evil and death, to free humanity from bondage. So Christus Victor, it's like Jesus is Superman. Jesus, Jesus hangs on the cross, and he goes down to the powers of evil and death, and he beats them up really bad, kills them, leaves them there. Flies back up. That's sort of Christus Victor. I, I, make, I make fun. There's the satisfaction theory, which is a death to satisfy the justice of God. So now, now we're starting to get into more of this substitutionary stuff. It is a restitution. It's a mending of what was broken. We've broken the relationship with God through our sin. So the satisfaction theory is humanity owes a debt to God, not Satan, then there's penal substitution, which comes out of the Reformation. Did you know that the two of the major figures, at least two of the major figures in the Reformation were attorneys? So just, I mean, that's, so, so you know, whatever our training is, like if, you know, once, once you go past your, I mean, you get some of this in your four years of college, but especially if you go to grad school, like you get, your brain gets trained to think in certain veins, Certain ways. Attorneys get taught to things, doctors, ministers, whatever. You go, you go on. So, so think about that. So they thought about it through a legal framework. It's more of a legal framework of satisfaction that Jesus is punished. That Jesus is, is, what's interesting is that Jesus is our judge, but he's also our lawyer. And he's, and he's also the one who ends up taking the punishment. It's a, this, it's a very interesting courtroom. Apparently Jesus can be everywhere all the time. So that's sort of the... So it's a legal framework to the satisfaction theory. It's still sort of a satisfaction. There, now here's what's interesting, and this is one I didn't even realize, and I've studied this for 20-some years. There's the governmental theory. Thank you, Methodists, for this theory. It's a variation on penal substitution. Jesus does not take the exact punishment we're supposed to get, but a punishment. That's fascinating. And here's the other thing. In Reformed Presbyterian land, John Calvin would say that Jesus died only for the elect. In this governmental theory, Methodists would say Jesus died only for the church, big C church, all the people who are followers of Jesus. That'll really get people stirred up. Then there's a scapegoat theory. This is the last one. I know that you're 
you've been, you, were, you wanted to come for this lecture today, didn't you? Scapegoat theory is Jesus is a victim. Jesus is killed by a violent crowd or, and by the government. The violent crowd kills him believing that he is guilty. Right? Pilate puts him out there. They believe he's guilty. Jesus is proven innocent because he's the son of God. The crowd is therefore guilty. You and I killed Jesus. But Jesus, as God, overcomes our violence. Takes on our violence. Takes on our brokenness. And sets us free from it in this theory. There is not one and only one theory of the atonement about why Jesus, quote-unquote, had to die for our sin. There are multiple perspectives, just like there are multiple teaching assistants for the Gospels, as that joke goes. There are multiple perspectives. We also know, in a more modern thought about this, it isn't necessarily an atonement theory, that Death and life have an intimate relationship. You and I live because we eat dead things. Plants have to die in order for us to live. Animals, if you eat meat, die in order for us to live. We die, and the very things that we are made of is what everything is made of, we end up fertilizing the soil, we die so that other things can live. So there's also a beautiful piece of this. And that's part of what comes out of the resurrection for me is that Death is not something to be afraid of anymore. Because we believe, as we saw through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that it leads to life. And that in Jesus, as the second person of God, giving himself willingly in love that we might have a new life, we can live differently We do not have to deal in death in order to live. We do not have to get things over on other people in order to get our own. We begin to see the world completely differently. And I believe that in Jesus, all sin is forgiven. That all people have the opportunity to live that new life, and that is why we are called to be ambassadors of this message. It is not about setting you against me. It is about bringing all of humanity together in this new life that we've all been given in Jesus. So as we approach in a couple of weeks, this great and holy week, of Jesus' death and resurrection, I hope that you will ponder these things and that you will open your mind to all these different 
valences, these different ways of looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it might mean for you as you seek to live your new life in Christ. Amen.